This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Mikhail Ryder, Gordon, and myself return for another episode into our deep dive of Wirecard. Today, we take a look at Wirecard and fraud, and Mikhail draws an extraordinarily interesting analogy of Wirecard and BCCI, which is a criminal enterprise masquerading as a bank, which came down in the 1980s. Please note that next week we will not have an episode of Wirecard as I will have a run-up to my 500th anniversary issue of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon for another episode in our continuing series on Wirecard. Today, we're going to take up the general uh, topic of Wirecard and fraud. So, Mikhail, first of all, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be back with the Compliance Evangelist. Tom, thank you. So, as usual, we had some pretty interesting developments uh, over the past week on the case itself. You want to start off with uh, uh, an update on that, Mikhail? Oh, heavens yes, in the continuing saga. And really, you're going to have to mute your mic because there are going to be fits of giggles breaking out. A stunning revelation this week. And really, does Wirecard ever let us down? Week after week? Okay, ready? It came to light this week that fully one-fifth of all Boffin staff, and by now, listeners, you all know, Germany's Federal Financial Supervisory Authority, a.k.a. Boffin, is the financial regulatory authority for the country and was, and maybe still is, tasked with oversight of Wirecard Bank. So where were we? Oh, yeah. One-fifth of Boffin staff has been found to have invested in Wirecard. Yep, that's right. You heard it correctly. The people tasked with regulatory supervision of Wirecard were also investors in the same said entity. (laughs) Moreover, whilst they invested in 2018, 2019, and 2020, in the six months prior to Wirecard's collapse, buying and selling Wirecard shares or derivatives by Boffin staffers reached a frenzy. It increased by 2.4% over the usual average of 1.5%. Conflicts of interest aside, as one savvy German parliamentarian mused out loud, the trading in Wirecard by Boffin staff is surprising and raises questions. Uh, You think? Said parliamentarian went on to question if perhaps Boffin staffers hadn't also engaged in some insider trading. You cannot make this guano up. So, despite Germany's Social Democrats having selected Minister of Finance Olaf Scholz as their candidate for chancellor in the 2021 federal elections, this recent disclosure by uh, Boffin uh, and and, uh, their staffers' uh, shenanigans 
It's going to raise some awkward questions because, after all, Boffin is housed under the Ministry of Finance. Ooh, I don't know about Schultz's chances now. So with that new knowledge in mind, it is perhaps a positive development that also this week the German Bourse announced that Wirecard's last day on the DAX index will be August 21st. The Bourse only last month agreed new rules which would allow it to remove listed companies in the event of insolvency. So Wirecard's fall from grace is, in a sense, now complete. I think from what has been revealed to date, we can be reasonably confident, though, that there will likely be more low moments for Wirecard yet to come, certainly for its former executives and its business partners. However, this removal from the DAX is more than symbolic. Now, remember in episodes one and three, we discussed at length the German regulatory environment and what may be generously termed a uh, lackadaisical approach to oversight of Wirecard? Well, this week, German media outlets NDR and uh, Süddeutsche Zeitung revealed yet more aspersions cast and kitty litter flinging between German regulators. And this actually occurred before the Boffin staffer trading disclosures. According to the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, Germany's Financial Intelligence Unit, uh, listeners from outside of the AML world and financial institutions, FIUs or government agencies that FATF recommended, those of you keeping track, Recommendation 29, every country should establish to serve as a national center for the receipt and analysis of a suspicious transaction reports and other information relevant to money laundering. See last week's episode, for instance, regarding wirecard money laundering. Associated predicate offenses, terrorist financing. Yeah, wirecard checked that box too. And for the dissemination of the results of analysis of that information, and specifically for sharing with enforcement bodies, both internally and across borders with other FIUs, right? All the better by which to combat transnational organized crime, threat financing, so on. Okay, so we digressed for a moment, but now we have our definitions. So the Munich public prosecutor claims Germany's FIU let their side down by forwarding only two reports about suspicious activity at Wirecard prior to June 2020. That could be said when all Wirecard hell broke loose. Supposedly, only two reports were sent to the prosecutor's office. The FIU, they say, oh, no, no. We received over a 1,000 reports in connection with Wirecard, 97 of which we deemed sufficiently serious. They say they forwarded 50 of those 97 reports to German law enforcement, including to the Bavarian State Police and the Munich Prosecutor's Office. They then unfortunately mumbled something about most of those suspicious reports having originated after the scandal broke in June of this year. So now the German police are criticizing the FIU and no fewer than four state justice ministries have filed formal complaints with the Ministry of Justice, there's Schultz again, alleging the FIU's negligence in discovering Wirecard's crimes. They did it. It's their fault. Germany's found a new scapegoat for this debacle, its own FIU. Not Boffin, not the finance ministry, not FREP. Not the federal police or Munich prosecutor's office or any other folks who ignored a decade of red flags and formal complaints. Nope, this is all on the FIU. The chair of the German Criminal Police Officers Association, Sebastian Fiedler, 
he went on record saying that FIU's review process was, quote, security policy catastrophe, and that he was just certain, certain there were, quote, countless other scandals in the data pool of the FIU. Oh, that's got to make investors in Germany, Inc. feel really confident now. And speaking of the Munich prosecutor's office and the German police, earlier this week, the two agencies collaborated on what amounts to issuing a wanted poster for former Wirecard COO Jan Marsalek. It was formalized by adding him to Interpol's most wanted list. But on Wednesday, August 12th, so we're about five days in now, representatives from the two agencies went on television and showed their wanted notice titled Fraud in the Billions and asked viewers to help them find Marsalek, who they accuse of, quote, having committed billions in commercial gang fraud. Viewers enjoyed photos of both the hirsute and clean-shaven versions of Jan. So, hey, listeners, wherever you are in the world, if you happen to see a lost Austrian in a duffel coat, with a few billion euros in his pocket, some crypto beads and trinkets, and speaking Russian. Can you please return him to Germany's lost and found? <laughs> Thanks. In the meantime, with respect to Marsalek's former Wirecard colleagues, Marcus Braun continues to maintain his innocence, at least he's staying on message, and the Philippine Justice Secretary now says they have confirmed that the German businessman named Christopher Reinhard Bauer who passed away in Manila Hospital two weeks ago, allegedly from a septic boil, was the Christopher Bauer, who owned Wirecard partner PayEasy Solutions and was summoned by the Philippine National Bureau of Investigation as part of their inquiry into the Wirecard frauds and PayEasy. Now, stay with us here. The Philippine Justice Ministry says they have seen documentation that supports Bauer having died of natural causes. Well, listen, whilst not wanting to speak ill of the dead, some of the circumstances and the timing give a cynic like me real pause. Bauer's body was cremated immediately after his death, or possible death, so there's no DNA. His untimely passing occurred just as he had been summoned by the BNI and his arrest anticipated. And then there is the fact that Bauer, via PayEasy, had received 260 million euros in an unsecured, quote, loan from Wirecard less than two months ago, just prior to Wirecard filing for bankruptcy. So is Bauer really dead? What would it cost to fake one's death and get some documents forged in the Philippines? I'm going to posit the price would be less than 260 million euros. If his untimely demise is genuine, where is all that money now? Does the widow Bauer have it? Call me suspicious, but Bauer and Marsalek were tight friends, and the hunt for Red Marsalek continues. You know, he who arranged forged documents in the Philippines? And speaking of those forged documents, the Philippines NBI has recommended for prosecution two Bureau of Immigration officers, Perry Michael Pancho and Marcus Nicodemus, Pancho and Nicodemus are to be charged with criminal falsification of public documents by a public official, violation of Anti-Graft and Corrupt Practices Act, uh, and ethical standards for public officials' laws. For those who missed out, 
These are the two who created false records in the Philippine electronic immigration system to make it appear as if Hiram Marsalek had transited through the country, creating a false trail to deceive investigators in multiple countries, thereby allowing Marsalek extra time to hide from authorities. Hmm. So that's the update, Tom. Conveniently, all this talk of deception cues up today's topic. Wire card and fraud. What did Euripides say? When one with honeyed words but evil mind persuades the mob, great woes befall the state. The German government is not only feeling the impact of Wirecard's demise, but the scale of the fraud is definitely causing woe. Silver-tongued devil CEO Marcus Braun and his executive colleagues spun their deceits couched in endless growth and expansion via acquisitions to a highly enthusiastic audience of German politicians, regulators, so much so they invested in the very company they were supposed to be supervising, institutional shareholders, including parametric portfolio associates, Aptex, Yorktown Growth Fund, Schwab Hedged Equity Fund, Lennox Wealth Management, Gamma Asset Management, and some of the biggest investing names from around the world, right? Vanguard Fund, BlackRock. SoftBank, Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund. Institutions held 53% of all Wirecard shares. Barely only 10% were held by its executives. 562 institutions held shares in the company. None of Wirecard's senior management team except Braun did. They all earned cash bonuses annually based solely on performance of the company's share price. As one fund manager observed, If one were designing an incentive for a Ponzi scheme structure, that would be it. So perhaps one of the greatest ironies of Wirecard is that in addition to its service offerings as an acquirer, issuer, and payment processor, it claimed to offer risk management solutions such as fraud prevention, creditworthiness checks, and transaction testing. Maybe this was more aspirational? Whilst the company claimed that 70% of its activities revolved around developing secure online payment and risk management solutions, really as discussed in last week's episode, any real profits were derived from processing payments on behalf of illicit and questionable activities such as online gambling and porn. Laundering was particularly profitable. Now, Wirecard also claimed that nearly half its sales by region emanated from APAC with Europe providing the majority of the other half and U.S. and Africa said to account for less than 10%. In a moment, you'll begin to hear a pattern of accounting irregularities and inexplicably claimed revenue supposedly derived from these regional entities that just never truly made sense. When the greater mob learned that how Wirecard was more a house of cards, the story that gained the greatest media attention initially was focused on that 1.9 billion euros of cash. The Wirecard claimed existed, but turned out to be a completely fabricated figure. If we dig down a little, as with the history of Wirecard and money laundering, it turned out that there was more than just one fraud that occurred in this company's past, and that had more people than those short sellers we discussed in episode two been paying any attention at all this ultimate massive fraud might not have built to the size it did. So let's unpick this. We're climbing back into that time machine and we're going back to 2011. 
Remember last week we discussed how 2006 proved to be such a seminal year for Wirecard? It was the year the U.S. passed the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, right? Prohibitions on gambling businesses. You can't knowingly accept payments in connection uh, with participation of another person in a better wager involving the use of the Internet, so on and so forth. This was when we saw Wirecard executives begin to create layers of offshore shell companies and start their gluttony of accelerated acquisitions of small regional payment processors. Now, also recall when we discussed last week the amount of revenue Wirecard was generating from serving as the banker and payment processors to illicit businesses, the porn, the binary options, the fraud site, the gambling. And recall in 2010, Braun is continuing to buy up regional third-party payment processors. Okay, now put laundering to the side and focus on the numbers. In 2010, Wirecard claims the bulk of their revenue is generated from processing offshore U.S. gambling payments. But in spring of 2011, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bahara, unsealed an indictment against Isaiah Scheinberg, founder of PokerStars, and Raymond Batar, founder of Full Tilt Poker, as well as nine other individuals, accusing them of operating illegal gambling businesses. There's a parallel civil lawsuit seeking $3 billion in civil money laundering penalties, allegedly online poker companies, right, disguising money they receive from U.S. poker players. This is all familiar, right, to the most recent stuff we discussed last week. Okay. Via one big case, U.S. online poker is shot down completely, utterly. It's gone. Now, remember what I said about focusing on the numbers? Wirecard claims most of its profits are coming from processing offshore U.S. gambling payments in 2010. But that's been shut down. In 2011, Wirecard's revenue growth, it doesn't budge. In fact, year over year, Wirecard reports revenues have gone up by 19%. They went so far as to claim that in the first quarter of 2011, they experienced 18% growth. How? They fake the numbers. This would appear to be where the crimes of accounting fraud were formed, running parallel to the money laundering Wirecard was engaged in. Okay, so here's that spree Braun is on. It reaches a frenzy. One of the best ways to fake profitability is to overpay to purchase assets from controlled entities. Then use the money that overpaid for those entities and have them push the money back to the primary company to pay down aging receivables. Wirecard was getting cash from investors and spending, on one, spending it on what it termed portfolios of relationships. That is, they were purchasing those small regional payment companies in other parts of the world who came with supposedly existing customers who would immediately become Wirecard customers. Nearly all of Wirecard's cash went into purchasing these largely unknown local companies, and they did use cash to pay for them. Their pattern was to pay in full or nearly all of the purchase price up front, frequently enormous sums, and oftentimes far above the valuation of these little companies. And those of you in the audience who do M&A work are already going, what? This makes no sense. You'd be right. Braun would claim that these prepayment purchase sums helped to secure Wirecard's exclusive rights to negotiate with these tiny little companies. Essentially, 
unlike a typical M&A deal, Wirecard was giving money to these companies up front prior to taking them over. And these really equated more to loans than anything else. The acquiree's existing customer relationships, Wirecard told investors, were so valuable. Uh-huh. This is an accounting trick, sort of similar to goodwill. It's an intangible value. It isn't physical merchandise or equipment or property. And that made it really difficult to accurately gauge what those customer relationships were genuinely worth. So how did we get to $1.9 billion? Here's the short version. They faked all those customers and sales. I know, spoiler alert, <laughs> sort of given it. The assets were never there to begin with. The deceit sounds simple, right? But really, this was a sustained and intentionally, intentionally complex and convoluted scheme that whilst numbers from around any one subsidiary or business partner could prompt questions from observers and critics, actually allowed the fraud to grow. And grow it did. By 2017, a client list seen by the Financial Times only identified only 100 customers of Wirecard, generating a full 50% of its sales. Now pay attention to the claim, 50% of its sales, 100 customers, 2017. Recall, this company had told the international investment community that it had a customer base of well over 100,000 companies. Supposedly, 33,000 large and mid-sized businesses and another 170,000 small businesses. It maintained this supposed list of 100,000 companies on an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> this was a publicly traded company, a supposed fintech powerhouse, serving entities around the globe, maintained its customer list on an Excel spreadsheet. This is akin to a multi-billion dollar bank keeping track of its customer transactions using an abacus. Only one-tenth of one percent of their claimed 100,000 customers supposedly accounted for a full 50% of total sales. And tellingly, in surveys of top 10 merchant acquirers, Wirecard never showed up. It transpired that the supposedly profitable European business, remember the other claim that 50% of Wirecard's supposed sales were coming from that region? Turned out, European business it had been losing money for years. So too, the small amount of sales from ostensibly issuing credit cards from the North American arm. Wirecard was claiming in 2018 that fully two-thirds of its transaction volume was coming from these regions. Huh? In 2017, Wirecard claimed Euro 3 million in losses for activities under its direct control. By 2018, that, sudden, that figure, it suddenly leapt to Euro 74 million in operating losses. Now, these losses were camouflaged by profits Wirecard claimed were pouring in from their APAC operations, specifically via third-party partners or outsourced processors. So we'll pause here for a minute and talk about a particular form of fraud, round-tripping. Remember the frauds perpetrated by Enron, Reliant Energy, Dyn Energy, Satyam? What did all of those companies 
have in common, and they all share something with Wirecard? The answer is what is known in forensic accounting as round-tripping. And no, nobody's dropped acid here. Round-tripping is a form of fraud that involves manipulation of revenue recognition. This may feel psychedelic at times. I t- <laughs> revenue recognition, or RevRec, in the geeky world of accounting is an accounting principle that basically identifies how revenue will be recognized and determined and then recorded in the books. If we take an obvious example, a company makes a product and sells it. Okay, so far, so good. When they sell that product, it generates revenue from the sale, which is, quote, recognized when the buyer says they'll pay for it. This is using an an accrual principle of accounting, and don't worry, this is not going to turn into that first-year college course you took when you got your best sleep in the back of the room, I promise. Okay, so this principle of accounting says revenue is recognized when it's realized and earned, not when the cash actually shows up from the buyer. Realizable just means that the customer got their goods or services, but they haven't paid for it yet, but they will. It's been earned. That is, the entity, in this case Wirecard, providing said good or services, has completed the activity of making or generating it in a respective accounting period. Now, here's where this particular principle can be exploited. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of some over-optimistic investors and analysts, and credulous regulators and auditors. What did uh, George Santayana, the philosopher, say? Those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Wirecard didn't really have sufficient revenue coming in, as we've seen from that European operation. If they artificially inflated how much revenue they were generating from sales, it's going to show up when their profits are reported on their annual income statement, and that won't align with their cash flow. Also, the company's AR, that's the accounts receivable, are going to start lagging, aging. See? Even in accounting, no one wants to age poorly. So how to cover this up? Round tripping. Pay money to another entity, customer, subsidiary, or one of those new acquisitions that supposedly comes with all those new customer relationships, Braun claimed, and then have them return the money couched as payment for an account receivable which was fraudulently created so the money can be applied against it. The money temporarily going out can be classified as any number of things, a loan, prepaid expense, purchase of a small regional payment processor, supposedly possessing a deep new well of customers who will switch to Wirecard. You get the idea. Think of a boomerang, throw it out there and watch it come back. The round-tripping transactions created this false sense, at least on initial glance of the books, that the company really had customers who were paying for their products. Cash flow seemingly lined up with profits. Now, another thing this accounting trick, round-tripping, accommodates is a form of money laundering. That is questionable money that is raised by the company, and such as bronze inexplicable loans to buy shares in the company, can misuse overseas business partners or subsidiaries to raise these cheap loans and bring the money back as an investment into other Wirecard entities or partners owned by the very same folks. Recall last week we discussed discussed just how incestuous the relationships were between current and former Wirecard execs and the literally hundreds of offshore shell companies they formed that comprised this tangled web of so-called customers many of which were involved in illegal enterprises or themselves complicit in money laundering. 
Round-tripping and this particular form of illicit financial stream are often found associated with funding of terrorism. The nature of the fund flow goes something like this. Company A floats a subsidiary or acquires an offshore company, say, in the Philippines, Cyprus, or Turkey, with B subsequently raising external commercial borrowing to buy equity of company C. Pick your country, Singapore, Malta, UAE, and from there laundered, it flows back out to safe havens. So let's turn back to Wirecard's high level of acquisitions of local payment processors outside of Germany and the APAC region in particular. It's really useful to know that Wirecard often encountered jurisdictions in which it could not process payments. It could be due to network payment rules, lack of appropriate licenses, which happened frequently to Wirecard, or other such obstacles. To get around these barriers to business, Wirecard became heavily reliant upon what is known as referring. That is, they'd refer clients to third-party acquirers and then take a commission for the referral via a share of percentage of the processing fees. By the time the Financial Times had really started to dig into the figures and documenting, uh, documented a whistleblower, um, had reviewed documents that a whistleblower had provided to them, this was about 2018, Wirecard anticipated that fully half of its 2 billion euro sales worldwide that year would come from referrals. Hmm. Wirecard actually had forged documents that claimed half its transactions, uh, the trans half the transaction volume would originate from countries where it didn't actually hold the necessary payment licenses to operate. The company claimed to have in excess of 100 partner processors, acquirers, issuers, and local service providers. But looking at some of those partners, this is where the fraud is created that allows all that dirty money to flow across and through Wirecard's accounts and entities. Remember when we discussed short sellers in episode two and how short seller John Hempton had identified a business entity of Wirecard's in Indonesia turned out didn't exist at all? And that, that gave Hempton the, the idea that, huh, something's not right here. Better to short that stock. In 2018, investigative reporters with the FT took a hard look at some of Wirecard's claimed partners in Asia Pacific. The reporters identified more than a dozen partner entities that, well, didn't actually appear to exist. Or if they did, they weren't in the payment processing business at all or had never heard of Wirecard. All of them were supposedly managed out of Wirecard's Singapore APAC headquarters. And once again, our favorite boy, former COO Jan Marsalek, plays a key role here. In 2015, Marsalek has provided Wirecard Singapore offices with invoices from several partners ostensibly based in the Philippines, Centurion Online Payment International and Maxcone. The claim was that just these two companies alone accounted for 700 million euros in commissions every quarter. Had this been true, it would have placed these companies in the top six customers for Wirecard Singapore. Unfortunately, Max Cohn's address turned out to be an empty warehouse formerly housing an auto repair shop, Sam's Auto Works, and a bar. Max Cohn's claimed predecessor company, Conepay, 
It used a residential address belonging to a retired seaman and his extended family and their chickens. They'd never heard of cone pay, unsurprisingly, although nobody interviewed the chickens in the yard. Centurion. Now, that was more complicated. Remember our possibly now dearly departed Christopher Bauer? Centurion's offices were shared at the headquarters of a bus rental business Bauer owned in the Philippines, in Manila. Bauer, himself a former Wirecard Asia executive, told the FT when he was interviewed back then that he had represented Centurion in some dealings with Wirecard, but he was just now an investor. But how could he explain his other company, PayEasy, remember them, who inconveniently were also located at the same address. Ah, Bauer claimed PayEasy provided payment solutions for commuter services related to his bus rental company, known as Froelich. But PayEasy inexplicably had some employees based in Cyprus, and its website not only looked identical to that of Centurion's, both Centurion and PayEasy claimed the same clients. When the FT interviewed the supposed clients of PayEasy and Centurion, none of them knew either company. A senior staffer in Wirecard Singapore office told a colleague that Max Cohn and Centurion all process for online gambling and porn sites and better not let that information slip out. But really, the invoices from these Philippine partners were forged. The money supposedly owed or flowing into Singapore, all fictitious. In 2018, those referring companies were claimed to account for some 930 million euros in sales, all fictional. The contracts, fake. And many of these fake receivables, they were allegedly owed to six other Wirecard businesses not just to Singapore or the parent company Wirecard AG, but to Wirecard Dubai, India, Ireland, and oddly, Gibraltar. Wirecard subsidiaries in Indonesia, Malaysia, India, Hong Kong, and of course, the Philippines. They're still being unwound as authorities continue to unravel the fake contracts and invoices that supposedly these entities transacted. By the end of 2017, Wirecard had no fewer than 50 subsidiaries out in APAC. In Singapore, in late 2017, a Singaporean law firm, Raja and Tan, were retained to investigate whistleblower allegations about the round-tripping fraud, and they confirmed false documentation, material differences, suspected laundering, all rolling up under the Singapore office, but also including Wirecard Hong Kong, where Wirecard executives are accused of lying to Hong Kong regulators in order to obtain, wait for it, a license to operate. (laughs) That's right, they've been operating. They just forgot to get that pesky license. And also Wirecard Malaysia, Indonesia, India, under the Hermes names, and, and that's an entire separate episode, and New Zealand. And I'll just add here, why did Wirecard New Zealand Need a lawyer based in the Dominican Republic? That's a discussion we'll have in an upcoming episode. Raja and Tan's conclusions about Wirecard Singapore in particular, and really focused on 
the Philippines, and the Indian operations. False accounting, forgery, deception, criminal breach of trust, corruption, using the Singaporean definition, money laundering, civil conspiracy, and under investigation, some of whom have already been arrested and charged, Wirecard Singapore senior leaders, including Ido Kurnawan, and hold out that name for a moment, he was VP of International Finance, International Project uh, Finance Project Manager James Wardhana, Irene Chai, the controller, Directors Fuxan Ng and Jeffrey Ho Kong, and EVP of Global Financial Services, the mysterious Russian Grigory Kuznetsov. Oh yes, and a set of related companies, OCAP and Senjo. Senjo was implicated heavily in a Wirecard acquisition in India. Wirecard had paid an absurd $300 million for this third-party acquirer in India, known as Hermes Tickets, which was eight times the price this small company, this acquirer, had sold for just weeks prior. Eight times the price. Ah! This was the transaction that involved the supposed publicity-shy investment group in Mauritius. And once again, it's John Marsalek heading up this fraud, alongside a guy named Henry O'Sullivan, or Senjo. And Mr. O'Sullivan will reappear when we discuss shell companies. The profits for the purchase were funneled back to Wirecard as a high-margin software sales and to pay down Senjo receivables. Linked to Senjo was a supposed trustee company in Singapore called Citadel. Remember last week we covered the arrest of the owner of Citadel? Now, Senjo, Senjo was supposedly a t- in the top three customers of Wirecard's Middle East operations. You following this? Wirecard had several entities in Dubai. The official Wirecard card systems in Middle East, remember Oliver Bellenhaus, our CEO of this entity, who is now turned witness for the prosecution in Munich? <clears throat> you know, the one who ran the supposed massive office out of his apartment in the Burj Khalifa Tower? And Wirecard Processing, Wirecard's payment processor that had real staff also in Dubai, and an unusual company known as Alalam, which Wirecard described as a third-party acquirer located just down the street. And Bellenhaus also ran it, if that's what you can call it. Alalam supposedly was licensed directly by Visa and MasterCard to process retail credit card transactions and ostensibly processed enormous sums of money for 34 of Wirecard's most important and lucrative clients from Russia, the Middle East, the U.S., Europe, and Japan. Uh-huh. Only for handling such claimed volumes, it only ever had a handful of employees when it actually had an office. By the time the Financial Times arrives, sniffing around in their investigation, the office is largely empty with some phones sitting on the floor. Visa and MasterCard, they say, we have no record of any relationship with Al-Alam, let alone having licensed it. And when the reporters sought to interview those top 34 clients, nearly half had never heard of the company. Eight were still on the Wirecard books as active, 
but the entities had shut down years before. Six declined to comment. Five couldn't be located at all. And only four said that one time they had used Al-Alam for processing. Yet Al-Alam was purportedly sending hundreds of millions of euros to Wirecard Ireland and another Irish prepaid card business known as Symex Prepaid. Al-Alam made documents that indicated they were processing some 46 million euros a month on behalf of Wirecard for Symex. At one point in 2016, documents from Al-Alam indicated they contributed half of Wirecard's global profits. Is anybody seeing a pattern here? Yeah. Once again, half of Wirecard's global profits are coming from a claimed third party. In another spreadsheet created by execs at Al-Alam, well, Bellin House, claimed the company was responsible for a quarter of Wirecard's global sales that year. Wait a minute. Is it a half or a quarter? Supposedly, 4.2 billion euros of payments were routed through Al-Alam in 2016 alone and produced more profit for Wirecard than the rest of the 62 billion worth of transactions Wirecard processed that entire year. <laughs> Are you keeping track of these claim numbers? Every time a business partner or sub is invoked, suddenly they are the source of substantial revenues claim being generated. Card Systems, meanwhile, was actually processing only about $2 million a month via Al-Alam on behalf of a Philippine internet gambling company, Gaming Network Solutions. But as the founder of GNS told reporters, that all came to an end in mid-2016 when the Philippine government banned online gambling for cash. A transcript of a chat session between Ido Kurniawan, remember, he of Singapore, and Matthias Helms, Wirecard's head of M&A, surfaced from back in 2015. Helms thanks Kurniawan for an intro to Auditor E&Y. Kurniawan says they're a lot of help, and then suggests Helms cut any proposed audit fee by about 80%. Helms responds by saying CFO Burkhard Ley and Deputy CFO Stefan von Erfa in Munich, remember, they're sitting uh, at the moment in jail, have been, quote, coordinating with EU Munich and that the new EY partner in India will be sent to Munich to, quote, be brainwashed. Helms goes on to say, quote, no impairment ever, whatever happens. They then text laugh and say Max Cone should stand for maximum confusing. They go on to discuss how they talked to EY about getting their revenue from the Philippines and India signed off on. Perhaps that's why Ley and Bonerfa are now cooling their heels in accommodations overseen by the Munich police? Hmm. So card systems supposedly generated more than half of Wirecard AG's profits, but Wirecard AG is lending money to OCAP and Senjo who are lending it to, that's right, Card Systems Middle East. See how it goes around in a circle? Meanwhile, in nearby Bahrain, another Wirecard Singapore entity, Ashazi Services, a supposed electronic payments company physically situated between a KFC and a car rental office, was claimed to be responsible for gener generating some 4 million euros a year 
that was being sent to eCredit Plus in Singapore, which was remonikered Wirecard Asia PTE Limited. One of Wirecard's first acquisitions in its APAC shopping spree. The owner of Ashazi Services claimed in an interview that the company had operations in Bahrain, Kuwait, and the UK and was part of a global network of partners. It had a sister entity, Ashazi Services UK Limited, which has since been dissolved, that was owned by a company domiciled in the Isle of Man and run by accountants. Hmm. Again, claims of strategic partnerships across APAC were found to be hmm, fantastical. Now, here's a funny little coincidence. In 2011, who was involved with Ashazi Services? Our very own wanted dead or alive, Christopher Bauer. The obvious question, of course, now, audience, is where the heck was the due diligence with respect to these business partners? Clearly, no one in Wirecard compliance or internal audit ever did as little as Google Earth the Philippine business partners that were described as payment companies when a drive-by or an aerial view would have shown a small shack with some chickens in the yard. No one ran the address of the UA partner to discover it was being run from an apartment building. No one thought that this, any of these warranted additional scrutiny. Why in five years did auditors never seek to contact anyone at one of the two Philippine banks for confirmation of bank statements? There's far more to these entities and the fraudulent schemes that were created were really too complicated to probably fit into this single podcast. But beyond E&Y, auditor to Wirecard AG, Wirecard subsidiaries were audited by Deloitte, KPMG, BDO, Grant Thornton, Crow Howarth, Baker Tilly, and a handful of other local country accounting firms. They all audited the books from these subsidiaries. Similar inconsistencies, claims, and false revenues were still being fabricated by Wirecard in 2019, even after the two whistleblowers had come forward, even after FT had run its damning exposés, even after the short sellers were crying foul, and even after the Singaporean authorities were publicly investigating. Wirecard went and created a new Merchant Cash Advance, or MCA, product and announced it would roll it out in a big way in Brazil and Turkey. In May 2019, Wirecard execs were telling investors and analysts that Wirecard was lending some 400 million euros, primarily in Brazil. A month later, they changed the figure to say, "Mm, maybe that's one-third of the 400 million merchant cash lending portfolio. Yeah, that's it. Uh, And it's to individual merchants, and it's not just Brazil, it's Brazil and Turkey. (laughs) Okay. Try to keep the story straight, guys. This time, short sellers dug into the numbers and found that based on audited accounts for Wirecard Brazil, there was no evidence of customer lending on the balance sheet and that the Brazilian business was entirely too small to sustain monthly lending volumes of in excess of $100 million plus. By the end of the year, so December 2019, Wirecard Brazil's receivables were just over 7 million euros. It had held at that level for several months. But when Wirecard first claimed in 2018 to be pre-funding receivables for the Brazilian operation, the Brazil facility hadn't even been set up. In Turkey, our favorite wise guy, Jan Marsalek, reappears. Named as one of the officers of Wirecard Turkey, 
and the instigator behind its formation. Wirecard Turkey was claimed by the Wirecard AG to be the latest location for the MCA product rollout. Unfortunately, the company forgot to check the local laws. Merchant cash advances are not legal in Turkey. Wirecard, Wirecard? It doesn't even hold a banking license in Turkey. Yet it claimed between Euro 70 million to 115 million in MCA lending. But the business in that country is not only illegal, it's nearly non-existent. What little MCA did occur, in violation of the banking laws, was minimal. Turkey claimed in, 200, in 2018 more than 16 million euro, but the Wirecard Group reporting suggested only a little over 2.9 million, a 13 million euro discrepancy. We compare Wirecard to Enron and Maybe just purely from a false accounting perspective, the analogy is apt. But when the focus is broadened, it really is beginning to bear striking similarities to the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, aka the banks of crooks and criminals. For those of you who don't recall, BCCI was also heavily implicated in money laundering. In fact, it was set up deliberately to avoid centralized regulatory review, operated extensively in bank secrecy jurisdictions, and its affairs were extraordinarily complex. Really, its executives, officers, apparent objective was really to keep their affairs secret, commit fraud on a massive scale, and avoid detection. And similarly, as losses mounted, BCCI systematically covered them up by making interest payments on loans with deposits from other customers. The idea was to deceive auditors from detecting the red ink in its loan portfolio. This sounds familiar, right? Covering up losses to fool investors and auditors? BCCI's scheme also involved offshore funds parked in lightly regulated countries that could be drawn down to patch up losses elsewhere. Did Wirecard execs study BCCI in criminal business school? And when capital was needed to absorb further losses by BCCI, they artificially pumped up their share price by lending money to existing shareholders to buy more stock. The proceeds from the stock would help balance the bank's book. But actually, the bank was merely taking depositor money and investing it in the bank. Hey, round tripping. Deja vu. The other key similarity to BCCI was like Wirecard, BCCI actively sought to handle money from illicit sources. BCCI laundered for, among others, drugs and arms traffickers. And according to the Bank of England, BCCI generated significant losses over the past decade that may never have been profitable in its entire history. At this point, we have to ask whether whether Wirecard was ever really intended to earn money for investors. Or was this accounting fraud merely a way of keeping the criminal laundromat operating? Similarly, only the executives in on the scheme and possibly some Russians, Bulgarians, and Hungarians were supposed to make money. Their profit was a percentage for running a sophisticated global laundering operation. Wirecard wasn't ever meant to be profitable. Next week, we look at the many ways in which Russia appears to have had its hand in Wirecard's felonious success. Here's a teaser. Why was a partner of Hamid Akhavan, German national Ruben Weigand, remember these two, 
They've been indicted here in the U.S. for laundering and trying to obscure online cannabis product credit card sales. And Why was Weigand, a partner with Christo Georgiev, founder and owner of the now-sanctioned Sada Bank out of Malta? You know, the one Russia financed and moved proceeds from fuel smuggling that was funneled to blacklisted Syrian forces? How is it that Vingard and Georgiev both tie back to some of the same UK shell corporations used by Wirecard and also have connections to Wirecard partners that also laundered money connected to Michael Schutt? I'll close with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He who permits himself to tell a lie once finds it much easier to do it a second and a third time till at length it becomes habitual. Well, Mikhail, I, in listening to your uh, discussion, I had come to the conclusion that the closest analogy was Theranos. Uh, that was immediately before you brought up BCCI. Uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, Theranos, not in the financial services industry. Uh, nevertheless, uh, a question could be asked if that company was ever set up actually create anything tangible. Um, there were some instances early on in the company's existence where I think they tried to mm -hmm. develop a blood testing, a blood test uh, from a drop, and they were unable to create the machine to do so. So um, I sort of rejected that analogy after coming to it in mid-podcast, but I was very, very persuaded and actually very interested that you were able to draw from uh, not uh, not recent history on BCCI. So uh, interesting analogy, um, and I particularly want to find the uh, business criminal school you referred to. <laughs> well, they've been they've been training their folks pretty well uh, at uh, at least long enough to per perpetrate billions of dollars of fraud over a sustained period, more than a decade. And I guess we now know why Boffin fought so hard uh, against not only the short sellers, but those investigating it because they had a uh, actual. They had a stake in the company. They had a stake in the company. <laughs> That's right. You've got to keep that share price up. They have, they have portfolios to maintain. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I can't yeah. wait to see what we can come up with next week. <laughs> oh, we're gonna. Uh, we're going to do go into lies, spies, and wire card next week. <laughs> so we'll have some fun. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the wire card case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. 
Thanks again for listening. Uh, please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. The series on Wirecard is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.